Section 6 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Albert Shue. The World Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tapan. Section 6. The Last Days of Henry Hudson, 1611. By Agnes C. Lout. Henry Hudson, in search of a northeast passage, touched the coasts of Greenland, Spitsbergen, and Nova Zembla. He explored the Hudson River in 1609, and in the following year, he made yet another voyage, this time in search of a northwest passage. After three months of exploration of Hudson Bay, his vessel was frozen in. The Editor The miserable winter dragged on. Snow fell continuously, day after day. The frost giants set the ice whooping and crackling every night like artillery fire. A pall of gloom was settling over the ship that seemed to benumb hope and benumb effort. Great numbers of birds were shot by loyal members of the crew, but the ship was short of bread, and the cook began to use moss and the juice of tamarack as antidotes to scurvy. As winter closed in, the cold grew more intense. Stone fireplaces were built on the decks of the ships. Pans of shot, heated red-hot, were taken to the birds as a warming pan. On the whole, Hudson was fortunate in his wintering quarters. It was the most sheltered part of the bay and had the greatest abundance of game to be found on that great inland sea. Also, there was no lack of firewood. Further north on the west shore, Hudson's ship would have been exposed to the east winds and the ice drive. Here he was secure from both, though the cold of James Bay was quite severe enough to cover decks and beds and beddings and port windows with hoarfrost an inch thick. Toward spring came a timid savage to the ship, drawing furs on a toboggan for trade. He promised to return after so many sleeps from the tribes of the south, but time to an Indian may mean this year or next, and he was never seen again. As the ice began to break up in May, Hudson sent men fishing in a shallop that the carpenters had built, but the fishermen plotted to escape in the small boat. The next time, Hudson himself led the fishermen, threatening to leave any man proved guilty of plots marooned on the bay. It was an unfortunate threat. The men remembered it. Jouette, the deposed mate, had but caged his wrath and was now joined by Henry Green, the secretary, who had fallen from favor. If these men and their allies had hunted half as industriously as they plotted, there would have been food in plenty but with half the crew living idly on the labors of the others for a winter, somebody was bound to suffer shortage of food on the homeward voyage. The traitor thought was suggested by Henry Green that if Hudson and the loyal men were themselves marooned, the rest could go home with plenty of food and no fear of punishment. The report could be spread that Hudson had died. Hudson had searched the land in vain for Indians. All unconscious of the conspiracy in progress, he returned to prepare the ship for the home voyage. 
The rest of the Discovery's record reads like some tale of piracy on the South Sea. Hudson distributed to the crew all the bread that was left, a pound to each man, without favoritism. There were tears in his eyes, and his voice broke as he handed out the last of the food. The same was done with the cheese. Seamen's chests were then searched, and some pilfered biscuits distributed. In Hudson's cabin were stored provisions for fourteen days. These were to be used only in the last extremity. As might have been expected, the idle mutineers used their food without stint. The men who would not work were the men who would not deny themselves. When Hudson weighed anchor on June 18, 1611, for the homeward trip, nine of the best men in the crew lay ill in their berths from overwork and privations. One night, Green came to the cabin of Prickett, who had acted as a sort of agent for the ship's owners. Vowing to cut the throat of any man who betrayed him, Green burst out in imprecations with a sort of pot valor that he was going to end it or mend it, go through with it or die. The sick men were useless. There were provisions for half the crew, but not all. Prickett bade him stop. This was mutiny. Mutiny was punished in England by death, but Green swore that he would rather be hanged at home than starve at sea. In the dark, the whole troop of mutineers came whining and plotting to Prickett. The boat was only a few days out of winter quarters and embayed in the ice halfway to the straits. If such delays continued, what were fourteen days' provisions for a voyage? Of all the ill men, Prickett alone was to be spared to intercede for the mutineers with Sir Dudley Diggs, his master. In vain, Prickett pleaded for Hudson's life. Let them wait two days, one day, twelve hours. They called him a fool. It was Hudson's death or the death of all. The matter must be put through while the courage was up. Then, to add the last touch to their villainy, they swore on a Bible to Prickett that what they contemplated was for the object of saving the lives of the majority. Prickett's defense for countenancing the mutiny is at best the excuse of a weakling, a scared fool. He couldn't save Hudson, so he kept quiet to save his own neck. It was a black, windy night. The seas were moaning against the ice fields. As far as human mind could forestall devilish designs, the mutineers were safe, for all would be alike guilty and so alike pledged to secrecy. It must be remembered, too, the crew were impressed seamen, unwilling sailors, the black guard riffraff of London streets. If the plotters had gone to bed, Prickett might have crawled above to Hudson's cabin, but the mutineers kept a sleepless vigil for the night. At daybreak, two had stationed themselves at the hatch, three hovered round the door of the captain's cabin. When Hudson emerged from the room, two men leapt on him to the fore, a third, Wilson the boatswain, caught and bound his arms behind. When Hudson demanded what they meant, they answered with sinister intent that he would know when he was put in the shallop. Then all pretense that what they did was for the good of the crew was cast aside. They threw off all disguise and gathered round him with shouts and jeers and railings and mockery of his high ambitions. It was the old story of the ideal hooted by the mob, crucified by little-minded malice, misunderstood by evil and designing fools.
The sick were tumbled out of berths and herded above decks till the shallop was lowered. One man from Ipswich was given a chance to remain, but begged to be set adrift. He would rather perish as a man than live as a thief. The name of the hero was Philip Staff. With a running commentary of curses from Henry Green, Jouette the mate, now venting his pent-up vials of spleen, eight sick men were lowered into the small boat with Hudson and his son. Someone suggested giving the castaways ammunition and meal. Jouette roared for the men to make haste. Wilson, the guilty boatswain, got anchors up and sails rigged. Ammunition, arms, and cooking utensils were thrown into the small boat. The discovery then spread her sails to the wind, a pirate ship. The tow rope of the small boat tightened. She followed like a despairing swimmer, climbing over the wave wash for a pace or two. Then someone cut the cable. The castaways were adrift. The distance between the two ships widened. Prickett, looking out from his porthole below, caught sight of Hudson, with arms bound and panic-stricken, angry face. As the boats drifted apart, the old commander shouted a malediction against his traitor crew. Jouette will ruin you all. Nay, but it is that villain, Henry Green, Prickett yelled back through the porthole, and the shallop fell away. Some miles out of sight from their victims, the mutineers slackened pace to ransack the contents of the ship. The shallop was sighted, oars going, sails spread, coming over a wave in mad pursuit. With guilty terror, as if their pursuers had been ghosts, the mutineers out with crowded sails and fled as from an avenging demon. So passed Henry Hudson down the long trail on June 21st, 1611. Did he suffer that blackest of all despair, loss of vision, of faith in his dream? Did life suddenly seem to him a cruel joke in which he had played the part of the fool? Who can tell? What became of him? A silence, as of a grave in the sea, rests over his fate. Barely the shadow of a legend illumines his last hours. Though Indians of Hudson Bay to this day tell folklore yarns of the first Englishman who came to the bay and was wrecked. When Radisson came overland to the bay fifty years later, he found an old house all marked by bullets. Did Hudson take his last stand inside that house? Did the loyal Ipswich man fight his last fight against the powers of darkness, there where the goddess of death lines her shores with the bodies of the dead? Also, the Indians told Radisson childish fables of a ship with sails having come to the bay. But many ships came in those fifty years. Buttons to hunt in vain for Hudson. Monk, the Danes, to meet a fate worse than Hudson's. Hudson's shallop went down to as utter silence as the watery graves of those old sea Vikings who rode out to meet death on the billow. A famous painting represents Hudson, huddled, panic-stricken with his child and the ragged castaways in a boat, driving to ruin among the ice-fields. I like better to think, as we know last of him, standing with bound arms and face to fate, shouting defiance at the fleeing enemy. They could kill him, but they could not crush him. It was more as a Viking would have liked to die. 
he had left the world benefited more than he could have dreamed, this pathfinder of two empires' commerce. He had fought his fight, he had done his work. He had chased his idea down the long trail. What more could the most favored child of the gods ask? With one's task done, better to die in the harness than rot in some garret of obscurity or grow garrulous in an imbecile old age, the fate of so many great benefactors in humanity. It needed no profit to predict the end of the pirate ship with such a crew. They quarreled over who should be captain, they quarreled over who should be mate, they quarreled over who should keep the ship's log, they lost themselves in the fog, and ran amuck of icebergs and disputed whether they should sail east or west, whether they had passed Cape Diggs leading out of the straits, whether they should turn back south to seek the South Sea. They were like children lost in the dark. They ran on rocks and lay icebound with no food but dried sea moss and soup made of candle grease boiled with the offal left from partridge. Ice hid the straits. They steered past the outlet and now steered back only to run on a rock near the peppered-colored sands of Cape Diggs. Flood tide set them free. They wanted to land and hunt, but were afraid to approach the coast and sent in the small boats. It was the 28th of July. As they neared the breeding ground of the birds, Eskimo kayaks came swarming over the waves towards them. That day, the whites rested in the Indian tents. The next day, Henry Green hurried ashore with six men to secure provisions. Five men had landed to gather scurvy sorrel grass and trade with the fifty Indians along the shore. Prickett, being lame, remained alone in the small boat. Noticing an Eskimo boarding the boat, Prickett stood up and peremptorily ordered the savage ashore. When he sat down, what was his horror to find himself seized from behind, with a knife stroke grazing his breast. Eskimo carry their knives by strings. Prickett seized the string in his left hand, and so warded off the blow. With his right hand, he got his own dagger out of belt and stabbed the assailant dead. On shore, Wilson, the boatswain, and another man had been cut to pieces. Striking off the Indians with a club, Green, the ringleader, tumbled to the boat with a death wound. The other two men leapt down the rocks into the boat. A shower of arrows followed, killing Green outright and wounding the other three. One of the rowers fainted. The others signaled the ship for aid and were rescued. Green's body was thrown into the sea without shroud or shrift. Of the other three, two died in agonies. This encounter left only four well men to man the ship home. They landed twice among the numberless, lonely islands that lined the straits and hunted partridge and sea moss for food. Before they had left the straits, they were down to rations of half a bird a day. In mid-ocean, they were grateful for the garbage of the cook's barrel. Jouette, the old mate, died of starvation in sight of Ireland. The other men became so weak they could not stand at the helm. Sails flapped to the wind in tatters, masts snapped off short, splintered yard arms hung in the ragged rigging. It was like an ocean derelict or a haunted craft with a maimed crew. In September, land was sighted off Ireland, 
and the joyful cry of, A sail! raised. But a ship manned by only four men, with a tale of disaster which could not be explained, aroused suspicion. The discovery was shunned by the fisher folk. Only by pawning the ship's furniture could the crew obtain food, sailors, and pilot to take them to Plymouth. Needless to say, the survivors were at once clapped into prison, and Sir Thomas Button sent to hunt for Hudson. But Hudson had passed to his unknown grave, leaving as a monument the two great pathways of traffic which he found, Hudson River and the northern inland sea which may yet prove the Baltic of America. End of section 6. This recording is in the public domain.